Mark chapter 11. Now, those of you who know me know that I usually read the scriptures from my phone, but I thought for this occasion I'd find the the biggest, baddest, blackest Bible I could find. (laughs) It kind of lends out air of authority. (laughs) Mark chapter 11. You're very familiar with this uh, passage, but let's just read it through again and see what it says. So as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to him, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, tell him, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have your word and that we can look at it and study it and, and find out what you have to say to us. So this morning, I ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the word in each one of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So a couple of thousand years back, this, is, this happened uh, two millennia back or so, people had their own ideas and plans about Jesus, concerning Jesus. And you all have a notion that these people, the, the people in their day, their plans were quite different, quite different from God's plan for Jesus. And so what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to kind of compare the two, man's ideas and plans concerning Jesus with God's plans concerning Jesus. So at the triumphal entry, let's look at, first of all, man's plans. The people. There's a Josephus, he was a historian, he uh, estimated that almost three million people came to Jerusalem every Passover. That's a lot of people. And so there was a lot of people there, a lot of anticipation. The Passover was a, was a feast. Um, and they, were, they knew about Jesus. They, uh, they knew about his miracles. They knew how powerful he was. And he kept talking about this kingdom business. And so when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, they saw him as an agent, an agent for freedom from the Romans. They saw him... Uh, you know, when they, when they saw him coming on that donkey, the vision of, uh, and I don't know if you know the story of Judas and Simon Maccabees coming into Jerusalem, number one was Judas to, to purge the temple, to cleanse the temple, and then number two was Simon to, to grant their political freedom was still fresh in their minds. And they, at that time, waved palm branches. Palm branches were a symbol of nationalism for, Jew, uh, for Israel at the time. Uh, they even kind of stuck it on one of their coins. Um, and so they were looking for, because the, unfortunately, the insurrection back in Simon Maccabees' day didn't stick. They almost never do, do they? They were looking for insurrection 2.0, new and, new and improved, hopefully work out the bugs, um, you know, like, um, maybe last a little bit longer than the last insurrection. Hosanna, what does Hosanna mean? Give us victory now. Victory. Give us victory. And so they were yelling to Jesus, give us victory. They saw him also as an agent for miracles. They knew very well what he could do. And he just came fresh off of the miracle of all miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead. 
And, but there was a constant thirst for more. Isn't that, isn't that the way it is? Isn't that, isn't that the way we are? We, we, we like the miracles, we, but one, one miracle is not good enough. He, they wanted to see him set up his kingdom and, and, and make everyone better. And so what, what were they actually looking for? You know, they were looking for like, someone who could perform big miracles to rescue them from the Romans, and they knew it could be done. But you know, there was a couple of things that didn't quite line up with their ideas. I, I think it was a little bit disturbing for them. Uh, you know, he, he didn't come on a war horse. That, that was, hmm. But that didn't matter to them. Okay, they're, they're gonna put that out of, that's, that's okay, we'll forgive you for not doing it right. But if you look at Luke 19, 41, this is an often forgotten part of the triumphal entry, or maybe what I'll call the not so triumphal entry. 1940, uh, Luke 19, verse 41, this is not in the Mark's version, but it's in Luke's version. And he, it says here, as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now, you know, it's enough to let tears start flowing. It's enough to cry, but to weep. That's loud. That's loud. It's going to catch people's attention. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your, the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I mean, this, this had to, this had to kind of shake a lot of people. This is not the words of a conqueror. This is not the words of someone that's going to free them from the Romans. He just prophesied that the Romans were going to pretty much destroy the city and lay waste, kill a lot of people. It was, uh, so already there, the people were, were kind of getting weirded out by, by what was happening. That's what the people's plans for Jesus was. Let's look at the religious leaders. What were their plans for him? Just eliminate him. They, they did not want him around. But they didn't want to just to go and murder him. That, that would be bad. They were afraid of him because the people were still pretty, you know, he did miracles, the people liked him. They didn't want to just murder him and then cause the people to turn against them. They wanted to kind of um, get rid of him as a heretic, not as a martyr, definitely not as a martyr. He Jesus threatened to undo their religious system, which they had painstakingly set up throughout the, the years. And when Jesus violated their sense of righteousness, they started plotting to kill him. You remember a couple weeks back when um, Jeff was preaching uh, on the, uh, the man with the withered hand, he, on, and Jesus healed him on, on Sabbath. And they thought, they couldn't see the healing, they just saw he worked on a Sabbath. After he had raised G Lazarus from the dead, throngs of people sought out Jesus and Lazarus. You'll see that in John 11. And so they, uh, here's what John said. He said, therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened the council after this, after all this commotion, and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were scared. The Pharisees were scared that if Jesus caused too much commotion, the Romans were going to come down really hard on things and just wreck their whole system. The Pharisees and religious leaders, above all, they wanted to um, preserve what they had. They wanted to preserve what they had, and Jesus was a direct threat to that. That's what their plans for Jesus were. Get rid of him. Now, there's another group of people. Um, um, what about the Romans? What about the Romans? What were they thinking about Jesus? And they don't, the scripture doesn't say, but I can just kind of conjecture that they were kind of nervous. Okay, so the, the triumphal entries, they also remembered the story of Maccabees and stuff like that. But I think they probably had some people online saying, hey, wait a minute, this is not happening the way, <laughs> the way, you know, we thought it would. He's on a donkey. And, uh, and so, but they were watching carefully. I, I think they were pretty nervous. Um, 
they didn't want to uh, pull the trigger, killing Jesus. They didn't want a full uprising um, because they came down hard on one of the people, uh, on a person that the Jews loved. But you know, at the same time, there were some Romans out there, high-level Romans, who knew about Jesus and were, were actually uh, sympathetic toward him because, let's say, one of that, like that centurion, Matthew 8, his servant was healed by Jesus. And the centurion displayed a faith that, boy, even a lot of the, the Jews didn't display at the time. So the Romans were nervous. They were probably glad to do what the Jews say, but they didn't want to act on their own unless things got really out of hand. And then, so their plans for them were ambivalent. Well, not ambivalent. They were just kind of like waiting, waiting to pull the trigger, waiting to do whatever was necessary to keep the peace. And the last group, the disciples. Like the people, they wanted to establish the messianic kingdom in Jerusalem. And they saw his miracles firsthand. They, they knew he could calm the storm. They knew he, they, they knew he could do uh, incredible miracles. They knew with one word they could, he could wipe out the Romans. They, they just knew. They believed. And they were ready too, weren't they? In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was ready with his sword. They were also ready to accept his delegated power and authority. They, were, they knew because they were his disciples, they were going to be part of the power structure. And uh, when you look at Mark, back at Mark 10, before all of this happened, starting at verse 35, this is kind of funny. He said, then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Just give us one wish, please. <laughs> and Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do for you? He replied. They, they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So it's, it's a pretty precocious thing to ask. But that's their, that was their idea of what their plans for Jesus was. They saw him an agent. They saw him as an agent for power to rule. Uh, but it's not as if they didn't have a, if the disciples didn't have a heads up on what was really going to happen. Let's uh, look, go two verses before what I just read. And this is, this is the craziest part of this passage. Let's go to verse 30, um, 33 here. And Jesus said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three, day three days later, he will rise. So it's not as if they didn't have a heads up on this. But the funny thing is, right after that, they said, um, can you, uh, <laughs> can you, can I sit on your left and, you know, maybe James on your right or whatever. <laughs> they, it just, I, that, whatever Jesus said just went way over their head. They just, they just didn't even hear it. So let me step out on a little bit of a limb here and kind of conjecture. What would the, if, if each of these group of people held a prayer meeting? Okay, so let's, let's pray for Jesus. What would it sound like? What would, uh, what would they all be praying? Well, let's, let's go to the people first. So that they, might, they might open the Psalms and look at Psalm 31, 31, 15, and say, and they might even quote it, saying, God, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from them that persecute me. Deliver us from the Romans through your prophet Jesus so that we can live in your kingdom. Their heartfelt longings, uh, yearnings, long for God's glory to be restored in Jerusalem. And let's go to the Pharisees. They might turn to Psalm 74, let's say, and quote that. He said, oh God, how long shall the adversary reproach Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? God, give us the wisdom in, in when and how we should remove our enemy, Jesus, from our midst. And they truly believed, the Pharisees truly believed that Jesus was their enemy. And that Jesus, ironically, the Son of God, was the enemy of God. Then let's look at the Romans. Well, they didn't probably know scripture, and they didn't pray to the same God. <laughs> So they might have prayed, Oh, Pax, the goddess of peace, grant peace to this land 
so I can return safely home to my family. And if this Jesus causes any trouble, uh, just give us the power and, and ability to, to deal with him. And you might think, well, maybe the last part should have been prayed to Mars, the, the, goddess, the god of war. They were pretty confused. They had a lot of gods. And then let's go to the disciples and, and kind of take a peek inside of their prayer meeting. You remember Jesus taught them how to pray. He even taught them how to pray. So they go, yeah, how did that go? Hmm. Let's say, okay, our Father, which art in heaven, yeah. Uh, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come. Uh, thy kingdom come on earth. Yes, thy kingdom come on earth. That's it. Today. Thy kingdom come today. And give us this day uh, wisdom to get us ready to rule in the kingdom of Jesus. Is that how it went? Something like that. They fully anticipated that God would answer their prayers to bring political kingdom. That, that, was their, that was their faith. That was their hope. And here were four groups of people. All with, and they all had their own plans concerning Jesus. All very, they're fairly different from each other. Um, and ironically, if you looked at, if you remember the, what Jesus said about what, what was going to happen to himself in Mark 10, 35, 33, it was the Pharisees' plan that was the closest, but for all for the wrong reasons. God's plan for Jesus was that he be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. God used their evil plans to set in motion his plans for Jesus, ultimately his bigger plans for Jesus, a plan that went far beyond the Pharisees' plans, or the people's plans, or, or the Romans' plans, or the disciples' plans. It transcended that moment in history. It transcended everything, as we're going to see. So let's look at God's plans for Jesus. We just looked at man's plans. And they were not pretty. Jesus struggled with it. Even Jesus struggled with it. In Mark 14, if you fast forward, he prays, Abba, Father, Everything is possible. Take this cup from me. He, he, you know, as a man faced with what he was going to go through, he said to God, take this cup from me, but not my will, but what you will. So what was it that God had planned for Jesus? And we, we all have a notion of what it was, but let me, let me go through them. A perfect sacrifice for his death, through his death. In Mark 10, 45, He said, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was before he entered the, the Jerusalem. Isaiah 53 is a beautiful, um, beautiful prophecy concerning Jesus. Um, let me just read it and just... Uh, just look at, just, uh, as I'm reading it, just kind of imagine, this is talking all about Jesus, okay? And this was, this was a prophecy. So this was God's plan for Jesus way before the triumphal entry. And starting at verse 2, He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Who can speak to his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. God had planned this a long time before the triumphal entry. God's plan for him was to be the perfect sacrifice. Why? Because of our sin. What's the second thing that... Uh, that God's plan for, for Jesus. And I, I see it as uh, to defeat death through resurrection. God's plan wasn't for him just to die. God's plan was also for him to be raised up. 1 Corinthians 15, beautiful passage, uh, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. This is next week's sermon, so I won't say too much about it. The first fruits of those who, who, who um, are asleep meaning the dead. For since by a man came death, through Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's God's plan for Jesus in our lives. It's a, as I said, it, it went far beyond the triumphal entry. And let's go even farther ahead. Let's go to Revelation. Another one of God's plans for Jesus in dying for us was to establish him as, as Lord of all creation. So if you go to Revelation 5, this is uh, one of the more glorious passages. I want to be there to see this because this is going to be an incredible event. So start at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept, this is John writing, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders uh, said to me, uh, don't weep. See the lion, the tribe of Judah? The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. That's, that to me has always struck me as a little bit odd, but it represents Jesus standing in the center of the throne. Encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. Do you see God's purposes for Jesus? They went, they go way off into the future. You purchase men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and, and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. That's a big number. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, he sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive the power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, every creature in heaven and, and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him that sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the, I wonder if they did the sevenfold amen. <laughs> and the elders fell down and, and worshipped. This is 
as I said, I want to be there to see this. This is going to be one of the most incredible things to witness. These were God's plans for Jesus. And as you can see, God's plans are to redeem man, to be the first fruits um, in resurrection of the dead, and to, um, to be the Lord of all creation, to be proclaimed as a, to, to have the right to that scroll. So pretty much uh, everyone back in the triumphal entry, they, they got it wrong. Okay, you, you can, we can say that. We can look at history and say, well, I think they did get it wrong. But let's fast forward to now. Let's fast forward to today. What about today? What are our thoughts? What are our plans concerning Jesus? Who is he and who do, what do we want him to do for us? And what I'm going to say is, is that, and I, I look in my own heart and I see this too, and it, um, that our plans are often inspired by our sinful nature, which, which makes self-interest our primary motivation. It's not a whole lot different from, man's, from man 2,000 years ago. If you looked at every one of those groups, every one of those groups were motivated by self-interest. Every one of those groups were motivated by what would be the best thing for me? So what are the, what are typically what do we, what do we kind of want Jesus to do? Well, number one, I think, I mean, uh, I think the, one of the most common things is to, to fix our lives. And most of us are here because we realize that left to our own devices, uh, we, we'll make a royal mess of our lives. And I think all of us are kind of willing to admit that. <laughs> we often en end up needing the consequences of our, our decisions uh, mitigated by someone a lot more powerful for it than us. It's uh, easy to dig that hole, not as easy to get out of it. Now, we might think our problems are other people's faults and stuff like that, and if we do, we're really in a bad way. Because um, uh, we all have problems, and I, I, my kids hate this. My kids hate this, but when, you know, that saying, when you point your finger at someone, remember there's three pointing back at you. <laughs> they, they really, we, um, I think we don't point correctly in this culture. Um, that wouldn't work. You know, in Latin culture, they, they point with your lips. Maybe that would work. <laughs> Not as accurate. But whether we think our problems are caused by ourselves or by other people, uh, we need help, don't we? And we want Jesus to fix our, our problems. And just like the people back in the triumphal lunch, we might be even willing to bow our knee to Jesus to fix our problems. But is this, is this kind of a form of conditional surrender? God, I'll bow my knee to you as long as you fix me. If, if your problems don't get fixed or go away like you think, are you going to continue to worship him? What if he doesn't come through with his, his end of the bargain? That's the real test. And, but, and, and the, the problem here is that God's idea of fixing man may go a little bit farther than we're willing to go. It involves much more than just patching up a broken life. As we'll see later, it involves taking that life and nailing it onto the cross. What's another thing that we kind of want Jesus to do? I think, you know, a common theme today is, is to bless our lives. We want God, everyone wants God's blessing. We kind of uh, expect dividends from um, being crucified with Christ or offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's, it's not that God doesn't bless, but is it conditional? Is it like, uh, you know, remember the sermon on tithing? Um, test me in this, you know. If you tithe, I'm going to open the floodgates. And, you know, so we kind of go, okay, I'll fulfill my end of the bargain, but okay, I expect you to come through in spades. Okay, so is that, is that the way we think? Is that the way we approach Jesus, saying, I will bow my knee to you as long as you bless me big time? Now, uh, the, the problem is, is Jesus did not come, down, come to bow to us <laughs> and obey our commands and to fulfill our demands. 
But I do believe God wants to fix us and to bless us, but not as a condition for our allegiance. So as you can, as you can see, our, our plans are still it, it, guided by our human nature, can, um, can be misguided. What are God's plans for Jesus in our life today? What does he want to do? What does he, you know, you have, you have Jesus, you have our lives. What does he want to do in our lives? Well, I think primary, if you look back at God's plans in triumphal entry, one of the things that, that Jesus, that God's plan was is to redeem man from sin. And that is the first thing I think that God wants to do. God's plan for Jesus in our life is to redeem us from sin, to restore us to fellowship with him. And let's talk a little bit about sin. It's not something that really is, we like to talk about. Um, it's one of those things that make you feel guilty, it makes you feel bad, makes you feel awful and stuff like that. But let's just kind of look at it, let's slice it up a little bit objectively here. I, th I believe there's two, you know, two major aspects of sin. One, sins that we commit, and the other is a sin nature. I think, you know, when we talk about sins, we talk about the Big Ten, you know, like, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, this, that, that, and the other. And also a bunch of other little rules here and there, don't do this, do that, you know. Um, and um, then there's a sin nature. But what I think is that the sin, the little, th little things that kind of pop out here and there that you try and keep under control with your life, um, basically are just, are just coming out, welling out of the sinful nature that we have. And where did that sinful nature come from? What, what is it? And why are we dogged by this so badly? And if you look in, back in um, Genesis, you'll see pretty clearly that it was Satan, Lucifer, who used to be this big-time angel, probably in charge of worship, something like that. He was in heaven, content with his job. Then he kind of, kind of went sour. He said, you know, I'm kind of tired of, like, giving all the glory to God. Like, what about a little glory for myself? You know, like, make me, like, can't I be a little bit in the center of this universe? You know, like, can't I... You know, can't stuff come this way instead of going that way toward God? Come this way. And so when, when Lucifer tempted Eve, um, by the way, he got tossed out of heaven because there's only one God. There's only one center of the universe, isn't there? When he tempted Eve, what was his, the second thing he said to her? First thing he said, surely you will not die. Well, that was not like right. And he said to her, you will be as gods, knowing good from evil. And Eve thought, wow, you know, that, that's, a, that's more ambitious than maybe what I have right now. So she was tempted and sinned. And as a result, the sinful nature caused her and, every, and Adam and everyone else after that to basically have the same disposition as Satan, wanting to be at the center of the universe, wanting everything to come this direction. We want to sit on the judgment seat and determine good from evil. That's right, that's wrong. You know, like, that, that's who we are. That's just what our sinful nature does to us. Our sinful nature wants to, be, wants to make us uh, the, the master, the master of our daily lives, the master of our own destiny. And if we can use God's power to accomplish this, yeah, so much better. You know, I, that, that's great. God yeah, can help me to be the master. It's our sin nature that says, I am master. I am Lord. I am the, the, the owner of my own life. I'm independent and, and stuff. So can you see how this sin nature makes us enemies with God? There's only one God, right? And we are not it. And if we are to exist in eternity with God, all of those ambitions need to die. They need to go away in order for us to even want to exist in God's presence. A lot of us uh, think about, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, I want to go to heaven, but they're not really thinking about why. Like, if you think about heaven, you think, yeah, it's a beautiful place, full of glory and grace, you know, that song. Uh, streets paved with gold, mansions everywhere, stuff like that. Um, apparently, a lot of harps and stuff. But they're not thinking about the, 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 the one main purpose.
person that's in heaven that's kind of right at the middle of it who's actually providing the light, and that is God is there. And so if we have the notion that life should kind of focus this way <laughs> on me, um, it's not going to work. It, it won't work. It, you can't exist in the same room as God. That's why I think uh, uh, any of the times in Scripture where man is in the presence of God, it's like they all of a sudden realize, I'm done. I, I'm undone. Like, I'm toast. <laughs> you know, Isaiah, uh, John. I mean, it was just like, I am so sin. Like, I didn't realize this is the way the universe was, is, and that is God in the middle. And I've been thinking that I, I'm in the middle. Romans 5, 8 to 10 says, but, if, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his, the death of his son, beautiful, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. His, his, we were actually enemy before we were redeemed. We were enemies of God. You know, a lot of us uh, through our lives maybe have made enemies here and there, and and it's not nice to have an enemy. Like they're kind of always out to get you, right? But you definitely, definitely don't want God as your enemy. Just believe me. So let's say you know we accept that and say okay. God wants to redeem us. He wants to re restore fellowship with us to restore fellowship with him. And you accept, okay, Jesus died for my sins. Good, got my ticket to heaven. I'm going to be in his presence. I can do what I want here, whatever. But God has another plan for Jesus in our lives, not just to redeem us from sin, but to be Lord of our lives. The phrase Lord Jesus Christ uh, in King James occurs like 81 times in the New Testament. And you, you say it so often, Lord Jesus Christ. You just kind of, you don't even think about it after a while. So uh, if you assign that term Lord to like anyone else, you start thinking about it, don't you? Like maybe Lord Justin. You know, like if you, if you wait, 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 that, that doesn't fit. Okay, that, well, maybe it does fit. <laughs> but well, what does Lord mean? In Greek, it's um, Lord is uh, uh, the word for uh, Lord is kurios. Uh, and it simply means the, the owner of something, okay? But, but that also has the implications that the owner of something also has control over that possession. So as a curios of something, and if we talk about Jesus being our Lord, he's our owner. He has control over us. He is our master. The one whom, from whom we receive instruction. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, You were not your own. You were bought with a price. In other words, you don't own yourself. He is Lord. We are not. He is master. We are not. This is God's plan for Jesus in our life. To be our master. What's the third thing that he wants to do in our lives? I believe, uh, and this is the most exciting, he wants to declare us holy, conformed to his image. And when you hear that word holy, certain things probably come to your mind. This kind of dour Puritan who goes around whatever, his shoelace is tied right, and, and, and he's boring, you know, that sort of thing. That, a, lot of, a lot of our connotations for holiness is like, ooh, you know, that's not for me. But I, I'd, like to, I'd like to challenge you and give you a little bit different of a definition of holiness, because holiness is a beautiful thing. Um, let's say Justin bought that nice guitar and brings it home and, and he sees that a nail needs to be pounded into the wall. He said, well, I just got this guitar. I can use that to pound the nail into the wall. 
hmm, he could use that guitar to pound a nail into the wall. It might work. Yeah, it might wreck it. Might put a few holes in it, but you know, it would might work. You would say that, well, it looks like um, you know you might actually exceed the manufacturer's specifications for that guitar, and, and you might, and that's why you are damaging it. Well, I believe that's what's called sin, exceeding the manufacturer's specifications. So God created us a certain way, and sin is exceeding those specifications. He, he created us to live a certain way. He intended us to be his creation. And when we do things contrary or exceed those manufacturer specifications, we damage ourselves, sin. And usually those damages come in the form of relational damages or even physical damages. It does, it, it, you, it sin destroys. It just, there's no other way around that. But let's say, um, he thought, well, I'll use the hammer to know. But you know what? The, it looks really good standing there, and the, it would make a good coat rack. So he throws a coat on it. Even, even then, you're, you're, the, the guitar is not being used as it's intended to be used, right? You're just throwing a coat on it. It works pretty good as a coat rack. You're not wrecking it or anything. But it's still not being used as a guitar. It's not being used as it's intended to be used. It's not being made holy. Or you could even, like, um, you know, put it in a glass case, put cool lighting on it, and make it because it looks really nice. And you don't want to touch it because it's, like, so nice, you know? You, you know how that is, you know? <laughs> uh, get your fingerprints all over it. And great, it looks great. Looks really nice. But boy, it's still not being used as it's intended to be used. It's still not being made holy. When, I, when do you make that guitar holy? When you pick it up and you stick your finger, I have no idea how to play guitar, stick your fingers on that fret in a certain way and strum it. That's when you start making it holy. That's when, that's when it is used as it's intended to be used. And that's the definition I like to use when I think about holiness is being the person that God intends us to be. It's a beautiful thing. It's not ugly. It's not boring. It's not dour. <laughs> Ephesians 1.4 says, he chose us, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight beautiful thing. It's a beautiful destiny. Beautiful destiny. Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Of course, Jesus was holy. So that's his plan for us, to make us holy, or to, to declare us holy, and to be conformed in his image. And in case you, you've heard tons of probably things about how do we be holy, I like, how, how do you do this thing, you know, like, um, and there's big lists of things that if you're going to be holy, you've got to do this, you can't do that, you know. And we, we try to codify it. We try to write it down, and we try to make rules about it, and we try to condemn people over it. And it's, it's a, it turns ugly really fast, really fast. It turns ugly really fast. That's when we take the concept of holiness and twist it to our, our sense of the knowledge of good and evil. But holiness is not something we do. It's not accomplished through rules and actions. Let's look at Colossians 1, 22. And I'm going to read the passage there. Let's just start at verse 22 here. Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. This is God's plan for Jesus in our lives. I believe holiness is, is primarily in, um, instilled in us by faith. You know, Peter said, be ye holy. It doesn't say do holiness. It doesn't say make sure you do these things to be holy. It just says be holy. And, and it's, it's a head scratcher to me too. 
But this is what God does for us. So I believe holiness only comes through faith, by believing the word of God. As we relinquish our own ideas about life and how it should be run and believe God and his word, we are holy. Let's read that whole passage. Uh, this is a, one of these glorious passages, Colossians 1.9, starting at 9. Actually, I could start earlier. Um, but you kind of, like, uh, there's a, I, I kind of remember the cartoon about Linus. He's, you know, Peanuts. Linus, he comes home after studying the, uh, one of the epistles. And, and Lucy says, well, what, what was it like? I said, well, it's kind of like reading somebody else's mail. <laughs> and when you read verse 3 to, to 7, you'll, you'll get why I said that. But let's jump in at verse 9. It says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, this is kind of like that, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that he may have you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. This is, um, Paul did run on sentences, but there's a period here. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's God's plan for Jesus in our lives. It's a wonderful plan. It's a wonderful plan. Now, if you're not a believer, you might be going, like, what in the world? Like, what, what are you talking about? And the gospel in a nutshell is, is simple. It says that God knew you before the creation of the world. He knew you were going to be sitting there right now. And he and intended you for you to know him as well. But your sin nature is doing everything it can to deny that and proclaim yourself as independent, self-sufficient, autonomous. And this disposition makes you an enemy of God. But God has provided that perfect sacrifice of his only son to reconcile you to him so you too can have that sin nature nailed to the cross and be restored to relationship with him as God and you as his creation. And in relinquishing control of your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes ownership of your life and makes you holy, just as God intended you to be as you were meant to be. Will your problems get fixed and, and will God bless you? Well, if you give your life over to God, you will be transformed, you will be changed into who God meant you to be. It may not be to your specifications, but he will change you and create in you the person that he intends you to be. That's God's plan for Jesus in your life. And then, now if you're a believer, we often need to remind ourselves of this core of the gospel. I have to come back to it all the time. There are many, many ideas and teachings out there that seek to put the focus back onto ourselves, putting us back squarely into the center of the universe. You can reach your full potential. You can be a master of your own life. And the, the, the teachings are, are out there. You deserve this or that. But you know, God's plans for Jesus in our life is to, to, deliver us, uh, to deliver us, not just from sin, but from our sin nature. Not just from sin nature, but from ourselves. I, I sometimes think, you know, when I look toward heaven, I think, you know, I think the best thing about it 
is that I'm going to be leaving this flesh behind and all the, the, the tyranny that comes with it. That's going to be fun. But God's plan for Jesus is to deliver us, us from ourselves, our sin nature, nailing it to the cross and raising us up as holy and blameless. With Jesus as our Lord, Lord, Jesus as Lord, Jesus as our owner. We're bond servants. Jesus as our master. And so sometimes we kind of, we need to kind of identify those teachings. We kind of need to reduce the volume of them that in effect try to revive that self. When you, when you come to the Lord, the self is, is nailed to the cross. It's put to death. You're a new creature. And a lot of teachings try to revive that self again. Give it CPR. Get it back to life. And we have no, we of all people should know that anything that starts with self doesn't end well. So, as we enter into this week, let's come back to the basics as a, as a body of Christ. As we uh, move toward Tenebrae service and, and um, Easter Sunday, let's embrace Christ sacrifice which has redeemed us from sin redeemed us from our sinful nature let's embrace jesus as lord of our lives he owns us he instructs us he's the one that tells us what to do and let's embrace the holiness that he has called us to the beautiful state of being just as we are intended to be let's pray Father, thank you for for your word. Thank you that we can know you through your word. And above all, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your intentions for Jesus in our, in our lives. We of all, all people are most blessed by being redeemed.